0: Hey guys, this is Alex, and welcome to the Two Dudes Brews Interviews podcast. On today's episode, we're talking about the classic 1966 Western directed by Sergio Leone, the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing to the podcast. Leave us a review, and maybe even tell your friends about us. With that being said, We hope you enjoy the show. We're back for the
1: first time in like a month. It feels a lot longer than a month. Uh, It it always does feel longer than what it's been. And a month feels like a year compared to a week feeling like a month. Very true. Even though that That confused me slightly. The math doesn't really work out on that now. But um, we are doing um, a classic, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Per my recommendation. I think it's something that we both wanted to tackle for a while. I think both of us have needed
0: a good excuse to watch it anyway. So. Was this still on HBO Max for you, or did you end up buying it? I bought it on Vudu, yeah. I ended up okay. buying it. I remember it was on HBO around the time that you recommended it, and earlier this week when I went to go watch it, it wasn't there anymore, so I was like, fuck, I don't want to spend $15, $20 on it, mm-hmm. at least not right now. And I found it on Tubi for free. Tubi? Yeah, T-U-B-I. I know what that is. It had ads, but it wasn't too bad. Okay. There was like one ad per hour, which is... Three. Yeah, three <laughs> ads. It was fine. Okay. That sounds... Uh, it's a slow
1: burn movie, so I oh. feel like it probably isn't
0: too obtrusive. Gave me enough time to get up and go mm. use the bathroom, come back. Ad was over. Perfect. Cool. You know? um, Don't want to skip too far
1: ahead. We're drinking like the show favorite beer <laughs> uh, between us two. So. Yeah. Uh, we're drinking Le Fendu Monde. Nectar of the Gods. Nectar of the Gods. I can't tell you how many times we've drank it, but it feels like a staple at this point, like a special treat. I don't remember the last time we drank it. We say it every time. It's almost been a year, I think.
0: There's no way. Almost. Because we did Tatan in like April. Like March or April, yeah. Something like that. Hmm. A little too long to go without it, if I had to say anything about that. It's a blonde or like a a trapel. In honor of our our boy blondie. Our
1: uh, man with no name. Um, even though it's just Clint Eastwood with a cigar in his mouth, like (laughs) the whole time. Uh, but yeah, it's a favorite and we'll, uh, we'll keep drinking it and it'll
0: be a problem. I'm sure at some point, but. Oh yeah. Yes, it will. Um, this is the first time that we've had it in a can. Yeah, I know. It tastes slightly different to me than what I remember. I agree. It's a little bit more metallic. I feel like it kind of tastes like banana beer. Are you getting that at all? It's sweet in the middle. It's not nearly as spicy as I remember. Remember how I used to have mm-hmm. that that bite? It's not there really. But I think it's just as good, but it's slightly different. I, I think know. I agree
1: I think I agree with you. I mean hell they could be changing the, the recipe on us eventually, but they better fucking not. Remember the first time we tried it, I think there was a lot of like like nutmeg and a little bit more of like a, a cinnamon to it, but yeah. It is a little bit more like um how do I put it? It's a little more balanced. Like yeah. you know, kind of a middle flavor. Yeah. I don't know. It's pretty good. It's always good. We're gonna have fun. Um uh, Yeah, man. Not a whole lot's been going on with either of us. You've been watching movies. I've been reading books. That's it, man. It's January. Yeah. Not a whole lot of new shit's coming out. You know, the Christmas block, like um, Christmas slots for movies is like waning out. Like Avatar obviously Mm -hmm. is still in theaters, but not a whole lot of new shit coming out. Like no new artists are really releasing, like, excuse me, big name artists are not like really releasing any good music right now. Um, Mm -hmm. Nobody's pulling like uh, week one dawn fm by the weekend or anything like that so yeah i forgot about that yeah everybody did because it was released way too
0: early there's going to be a lot of uh album announcements probably like in march april that time span new national coming out jpeg hopefully new frank ocean coachella is around then yep and he's headlining one of the nights unless he cancels unless he just sings shit from blonde and everybody will still be happy i'm sure (laughs) i would still die (laughs)
1: totally yeah um Let's open her up. Uh, First Western. All right. This is
0: kind of a big thing to tackle.
1: This is like uh, infamous, considered by some directors such as Quentin Tarantino as the best film ever made. Yeah. It's definitely great. I'll
0: say that much. Hearing shit like that really set my expectations high. Mm -hmm. And you know how sometimes you go into a classic and it just doesn't hit the way that you want it to. Mm -hmm. This was definitely not the case with this one. Okay. I went in with high expectations and it exceeded them and then some. I think I can say with confidence that this is like one of the greatest fucking things I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. <laughs> okay, cool. You know,
1: I don't know if I share that same sentiment with you to be honest with you. Really? You know, it's not like I didn't enjoy my watch. I I, I really did. I I thought there were some things that really um threw a curveball um for what my expectations were as far as like plot and character. I was really expecting it to be a little bit more cookie cutter same stereotypical you know playing to like western tropes i think in the long run um i see what it was doing um i think it would be something that i would enjoy more with um concurrent viewings you know just um it's a 3 hour film it's a lot to sit down through and mm-hmm. granted it's in my opinion not very action packed i no I, I'd, I'd agree with that i would say like um at least 80% of the time, it's just a lot of slow burn ADR dialogue. (laughs) You know, there were, there are things that kind of like keep the tempo constant and slow, which don't get me wrong. I'm like definitely here for, but there were like some problems I have, but like there are some amazing highlights as well. I just don't think I held it to the esteem that I thought I would Mm. when I came out on the other end, but I still really appreciated
0: a lot of things going on. Okay, that makes sense. When I say all that, I don't mean it's like a perfect movie with something that's like 60 years old mm-hmm. almost. When did this come out? 64? I think 66 or 68. I will find out for you. Hold on one sec. One thing that kind of shocked me actually was the knowledge that something like Psycho came out four to six years before this, but this feels older. came out in 66. 66, okay.
1: Yes, it does feel very aged. I mm-hmm. mean, this was... This was, let's see, seven, yeah, seven years before my father was born. Oh, wow. So it is, um, 40, Math. 50, 57. Is my dad 50? No. <laughs> There's no way he's fucking 50. He'll be 50 in May. But, um, yeah, he'll be 50 in May. God, that old fucker. But anyway, it's, um, it's old as fuck. I, I think a lot of it holds up really well. I think so too. Especially visually. I think visually it holds up in a way that I never really expected from this era. I think Psycho visually it's age, on a small scale. It, yeah. I think the tightness being interior, all the um the whole movie is essentially interior small set rooms. I think that really ages a film. Yeah. When it when it, you go back that far. This movie it being essentially expansive open set this out is in the a, desert. This is a fucking spectacle. Yeah. It's like comparing, uh, it's like old Villeneuve in a way. Like the mm-hmm. color palettes, obviously there's no aliens or fucking dune, fremen, worms <laughs> and you know, but yeah. to me it, it just feels expansive and open and cinematography, cinematography this old still feels really fresh.
0: Yeah, man. I think there's a reason for that though, why it still feels fresh. I feel like this established so many tropes. Like shot wise, mm. shot composition, a lot of snap zooms and like amazing uh, the editing, bro. Oh, the editing is great <laughs> in this. I don't know. I feel like just because so many people have copied it over the years it just kind of makes it feel not old anymore, you know. Yeah. Um we should preface there, this is technically um
1: the third installment of a of a trilogy and kind of. Well, I
0: think all three characters are in all three, mm-hmm. I think. Um Eastwoods in all three. Lee Van Cleef, the bad, mm-hmm. is in two of them, and then I think this is the only one with uh, Tuco. Okay, Eli Wallach, I believe mm-hmm. he was supposed to be in one of the others, but the studio interfered and mm-hmm. said he's not a big enough star, I guess, okay. and they didn't bring him back, and that uh, that led to his friendship with uh, old Sergio. I think they kind of broke it off after that, I guess. Okay, see, I figured you would
1: do a lot more deep diving in that aspect of like. Uh, history between casting and director and all that shit i'm so bad about that i do not
0: do that i tend to be obsessive about pretty random things to be honest (laughs) do you like collect toenails and shit like
1: that like keep it underneath the sink and shit no comment have you ever (laughs) have you ever uh this is a weird sidetrack but elizabeth will she'll tell me like all these weird things she hears on the radio about like second date updates and all that shit about weird fucking people even though I think at a certain point they're like scripted in some ways. Um, but I don't know. Who, who cares? But people keeping like toenails and yeah, just weird shit. That frightens me that
0: there's human beings out there like that. I mean, one of my buddies used to have dreadlocks and when he cut them, he kept them in a bag in his closet. That's so, so weird. Yeah. That's so fucking weird. That's not my thing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I wish he would have never told me that. I don't want to know who it is or anything like that. Um, anyway, I think something that it really blew me away it was about the first fifteen to twenty minutes of this film, um, getting our intro to the good, the bad, and the ugly. I think Tuco's was kind of hard to get into the zone at first. The establishing shots were a little confusing. I didn't really understand what was
0: going on. This is the guys walking into the saloon, mm-hmm. right? I guess with the uh, the other two characters, the good and the bad, they kind of had more of an established scene mm-hmm. before we get that that title card saying who it is. Tuko just jumps out the fucking window. Yeah. And it's like here he
1: is, and that's something I want to comment on. Like, why does he jump out the window? He kills all three men and
0: then jumps out the window. I don't know.
1: <laughs> like it's bizarre to me. Could with be like af- a turkey leg.
0: Could be afraid that uh, there's more outside or on the way or something. Mm. I don't know.
1: You know, I I think that was a little uncomfortable getting into and granted you know you get like a few minutes of film score intro credits
0: stuff like that which is pretty typical of a, a film this old this title sequence is like amazing though yeah. the animated shit mm-hmm. especially with um Ennio Morricone's score behind it which uh, I'm sure we'll bring up a few times mm-hmm. throughout the episode briefly on that
1: like I, I just couldn't believe how much the score gets reused in modern day obviously the the whistle, I don't know how to describe it, but yeah,
0: <laughs>
1: that it's used uh, in everything. Yep. It's been parodied a billion times. The like that's used on fucking uh, commercials today. Interesting stuff like highlight clips for like NFL or like NBA, like just weird stuff on like ESPN uses like these weird Callbacks to this for some reason. <laughs> Just bizarre to me. Dude, it's so iconic though. It is. I guess I never really thought about where it came from, which mm-hmm. was a pleasant surprise, you know, going back in history.
0: You would think it's kind of played out because of how often it is used in modern culture, but going back to the source material and seeing it play out how it was supposed to be, like brought new life to it mm-hmm. to me for some reason. I completely agree. Seeing where
1: they they lie in the film was like, oh, I, I mean, I guess I never really would associate this with this um, emotion or scene. It It was very bizarre. God, dude, the best intro, though, is the bad. I was fucking blown away with the shot. Him standing in the doorway for, like, two to three minutes doing nothing, essentially, like, just making his presence known. Like, that was fucking amazing. For some reason, I've never seen such a sinister mustache in my
0: life. There's something about... Lee Van Cleef's face that has, like, this natural evil mm-hmm. aura behind it. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine, like, going through life looking like this. Not saying he's, like, a super ugly dude or anything. No, he's a handsome man. Like, he looks like if he was, like, hitchhiking, you wouldn't pick never, him up. You never, never. No. He, he looks very untrustworthy, which
1: I think is, like, oddly contrasted with Tuco. Him being the most untrustworthy, like, scumbag, rat, out of all three, like, it seems... He actually, like, his face is extremely lovable. Like, he's kind of like your uh, deadbeat uncle or something. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) You kind of love him, even though, despite his flaws, which I think he's a character that I I
0: grew to love the most throughout the film. Same. It's kind of weird because I I came into this obviously knowing that this is, like, Clint Eastwood's, his, like, stardom jumping off point. Mm -hmm. And I already kind of knew who Lee Van Cleef was because he's done some stuff with John Carpenter 10, 20 years later, maybe. But the one guy I did not know was Eli Wallach, Mm -hmm. and it turns out, like, this is basically his movie. Yeah, I looked at his filmography, and there was just
1: not a whole lot afterwards where I felt like it was extremely noteworthy. I definitely think out of all three, he has the most—how do I put this? His character has the most range, I feel like. I feel like his character gets to touch on a lot. I agree. Where, where you know he's a piece of shit but also you sympathize with him when he meets his brother in the church you know you kind of feel for him because he almost feels tortured quite literally at some point in the film in the prison of war camp and then also like he has his own moments to shine especially like uh in the back half of the film which i don't know i i guess that's something i wanted to bring up too like i don't know how you thought the film was gonna play out you know you think you have your three characters and my point of view was, oh, it's going to be, like, this constant chase or constant action. These characters would meet and break away, but it would be... They wouldn't team up in any way. It felt like the three plot lines would meet eventually in some way. Like, that's how I I viewed it in my mind. But for some reason, like, everyone works together at a certain point And then everybody works against each other at a certain point. And then it's also, like, solo. It was, um... A lot going on, especially like the length of the film drawn out. Like you get like these ebbs and flows within these characters interacting, the dynamic changing between the power struggle, who's on the bottom, who's on the top. It was really
0: interesting to me. I think the character relations were more dynamic than you see in about 95% of mm-hmm. movies, probably. And it's harder to comment on. Angelize Van Cleef's character because he kind of disappears entirely for the second act. I'd say, yeah, he's not really in focus until that last hour. Maybe, yeah.
1: The um, the prisoner of war camp, I think, like, kind of reestablishes him, and then he kind of like breaks away again once they. I mean, but it's like an hour after the fact, like after they leave the prisoner of war camp, he makes his way slowly back into the into the scene. You know, Clint Eastwood teams up with him, but they brief like they break pretty quick. I don't know it. There's a lot to comment on, especially like, and we'll get there, like morality and the way these characters are portrayed long term throughout the film.
0: I think it's not a huge issue that Van Cleef disappears for a while, because I think in a three hour movie, you can really run the risk of overexposing your villain, Mm. especially when he's like a character that might be a little too one note if you see him too often. Mm. I think the fact that his presence is established in the first act even when he's not on screen, it feels like he's lurking behind the scenes, you know? Like, yeah. You know he's going to come back eventually. Also with his character,
1: I guess I didn't understand what his angle was until deep into the film. I think when he's introduced, he just kind of, like, plays into the trope of, I'm the bad guy, and I'm here to kill people for money. I had no preconception of, like, who is he? What is like? Is he just a hired gun Like, why is he hunting down Bill Carson? And obviously, like, that's given to us slowly. But I'm like, what does he do for a living? And then, like, you get midway through the film, and it's like, oh, yeah, he's, like, a part of the union, and he's, like, a captain or a general or whatever the fuck. I don't know what his uh, title is, but I'm like, he's a soldier for some reason.
0: Probably Mm high-ranking, at least.
1: It felt like um, he was so transient. It was really hard to, like, kind of nail down his character until much later in the film, which was kind of bizarre. Um, it's not something that I really expected. I don't know if you felt this way, but throughout the film, were you like, I was constantly questioning what was happening. There were like many times in the film where dialogue does not enter until deep into a scene where a character is walking around being somewhere and your brain is constantly working to
0: figure out what's the point of this. Yeah, I agree with that. But I don't know if I ever questioned it really in that same way. I My br- trust in it.
1: My brain was working so hard. <laughs> like, because <laughs> you're given such little information over like a long stretch, mm-hmm. and I couldn't quite nail down what exactly was happening.
0: Well, th- this is something I kind of wanted to bring up. The reason why I didn't worry about it is because I think about an hour in, I realized that the movie's not super story driven Mm. it's more here's these random scenarios along the way and somehow it adds up to everybody meeting up at the same place at the same time Mm. later on like it was just like really some like vignettes almost
1: yeah that's a good way to put it that's the other thing okay full circle it being vignettes was the complete opposite of what i thought was going to happen i thought you would have there would be a female character that blondie was going to like somewhat have a a slight love interest with, but also like he's stoic and I I don't got time for that type of (laughs) bullshit. And Tuco would try to hold her hostage or something. Like I thought it would be very, I don't know, structured and trope driven. And it was actually like the complete opposite. To your point, it is just vignettes of people being places at a particular time, I think at some, at some points, those transitions between vignettes are like extremely comedic, almost parody. Like (laughs) I I know it's like, um, you're working with a specific era. Maybe you can get away with certain things, but them crossing over trying to be like, we got to get on the other side of that river. And then all of a sudden it's like, we're 15 feet away from (laughs) an, uh, an entire, battalion of union soldiers that was kind of comedic to me i'm like okay how did they not know that they're walking up on 800 to (laughs) a thousand like union soldiers on a hill
0: yeah that's true and that's one of those like side quests that i found a little pointless really Really? okay that army area scene whatever you want to call it It is a battle on the bridge yeah that's one of the ones where i was uh you know that's like almost Two and a half hours in, so I was, I was getting a little tired. Admittedly. Exactly, I was like, it's, let's get to the end. The last forty minutes, oh my god, like
1: it's so long. Like then, <laughs> like they blow up the bridge and all this bullshit. And don't be wrong, I love that's like my that's my highlight outside of the end. Because I think a lot is shown throughout that that scene in particular. I'm like, there is 40 minutes left, and I know we're at this goddamn gravesite. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like it just felt... Uh, I'm like, what can happen? Now, granted, 10 minutes were t- taken up by people staring at each other. Yeah. yeah. I get that. It was fucking wonderful, though. Yeah. Not gonna lie. We'll get there. You know, like, in the first hour of the film, I think, to me, is extremely forgetful. Like, I forget about it almost... I'm trying to think. It's like okay, we get introduced to our characters briefly, and then it's uh, Clint Eastwood out in the desert, and it's constantly running. We're I'm gonna hold you hostage, and I'm gonna hold you hostage, and do you know Bill Carson's name, or what's the name on the grave? And I don't
0: oh, know. I thought all that shit was so awesome, though. It is, but I think it's the
1: film is so lengthy that it's kind of hard for my brain to like really pinpoint like where do we start and
0: where do we end. I wouldn't consider the first hour to be forgettable because I think there's a lot of fun stuff in there, mm-hmm. especially because we were talking about how it this movie subverts a lot of tropes. The whole um, Clint Eastwood taking Tuco in like a, as like a, a fake bounty and then mm-hmm. freeing him. I thought all those sequences were like so fun. No, I think they're great. I didn't expect it either. Like mm-hmm. when it, when they um, show the first scene where they're exchanging money after freeing him for the first time. I'm like, oh, they're they're in fucking
1: cahoots. Like. Mm-hmm. And I think that brings up our first point of morality being extremely wishy-washy between these characters. Oh, yeah. Again, subverted my expectation. I'm thinking the good, the bad, and the ugly. Like, we're going to play to these titles of our three characters, straight cut, no ifs, ands, or buts. Where, like, I was going into this thinking Clint Eastwood is going to be the man. And and then I'm like, hey, he kind of has his moments of being a piece of shit. For
0: sure. Fucking threw me for a loop. I think a a more realistic title for the movie would be The Ugly Times Three. (laughs) That's really all it is. Mm -hmm. I think they all have like a few moments that somewhat differ from each other. I mean, uh, Eastwood. That sounds so weird, just calling him that. (laughs) Blondie, when they're at that um, that big battle site with like the army, and he like puts the blanket over the soldier. That seems like that's a good guy. That's a good guy moment right there. Mm -hmm. But then there's so many contradictions for that character, Mm -hmm. or Van Cleef killing a teenager in that beginning lunch scene, like, that's really bad. Yeah, they're just, they're all fucking morally ugly, Mm -hmm. for the most part. That's super interesting.
1: Yeah, I think uh, for the time, it's uh, something unexpected. I guess for some reason, when you frame people historically, you always think they're more ignorant than you. I don't know if you have that view in your head. I do. I think, like, one of the big ones for you, I think that everyone... I think, experiences is Nazi Germany, World War II. Everyone's thinking, how could that have happened? Very easily, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's not like those people were... I mean, you're talking about on the cusp, 10 years later of nuclear fusion, the atom bomb, science. We literally took the Nazis in to NASA. Like, we... We brought <laughs> that up a few yeah. times. I know. I don't know why. But it's like... um Hey, like everyone is actually just as equally ignorant, like <laughs> morally, mm-hmm. ethically. We are all extremely messy. But for some reason, when I think about old films, I'm like, oh, it's fucking, hey, it's, we've got a couple of, my grandparents watched this movie. Like, you know what I mean? It's a, Yeah. I view them in a way like it's the old world.
0: Like this is the new world. There are still some examples of things aging very badly, though. I agree. Like, like treatment of women, minorities, mm-hmm. like that type of shit. Like sometimes you watch an old movie and go, like, Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. like, you know. But um, for the most part, yeah. Sometimes I go back and damn, things were just as complicated then as they are right now. Um,
1: fun fact: I found out what a spaghetti western was while watching this movie. <laughs> I didn't understand that term until to watching it. I'm like, oh, it's because it's made by an Italian. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I get it. That's hilarious.
0: This is a revelation that I also came across Mm -hmm. over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Italians making movies. I think this movie, at least with the knowledge that I have of what Italian movies are, it fills in the tropes, the ADR. We're going to cast everybody with different languages, perform the scene in your native language, even though you got an English guy, an Italian, a Frenchman, a German. We'll do it all in post production. Fuck it. Yeah. Why not? They recorded the movie without sound. Really? This N- is something I did not know. No sound was recorded live. Everything is um sound effects. ADR. Lines being read, ADR. <clears throat> yeah. Did that distract you, by the way? Is that something that like bugged you along the way? Really early
1: on, it was something that I could not get over. And I think that was <laughs> I think that was very apparent with the way the film is structured, extremely slow burn. I mm-hmm. think it's really easy to catch things like that and be distracted by them because you have, I mean, you're just on a still shot of a person talking, you know, a majority of the time. And when they don't sync up, it is a little distracting. I didn't hate it by the end. I mean, at the by the end, I'm like, you know, you it get, is what it is. You get pretty damn used to it. Yeah. I mean, if you sit there long enough, uh, of course, if you watch Into the Spider-Verse, when you first watch it, the first ten minutes, you're like, "Oh, like these this frame rate is like really different." My head hurts. But by the end of it, you're like, "That was the coolest shit I've ever seen in my life." So you yeah,
0: know, I think there's a few examples that are more egregious than others. Yeah. Um, one specifically that comes to mind is the legless soldier that uh, Van Cleef like gets info from. They didn't even fucking try in that scene. Mm-hmm. I thought uh, there was one scene with. Tuco where he's like by himself in the cave and it kind of yeah. feels like this this weird narration is going over the scene and like the audio quality was different than everything else in mm-hmm. the movie that's like one of the scenes where I was like completely taken out mm-hmm. of my immersion I mean shot wise that's a beautiful scene but yeah it is
1: audio wise it's like really frustrating
0: like once he starts talking I'm like what the fuck is going on like, <laughs> it didn't even sound like the actor I know you know that bugged me a whole lot stuff like that is very strange which like that would never fly today at, at all. No.
1: Granted, I think after it's established, like hey, it's ADR, it's not gonna sync up perfectly, I think um for me I was more awestrucken by the setting, open expanse, interesting situations. Oh yeah. Like for me, like one of my favorite <laughs> one of my favorite sequences in the film where Tuco is handcuffed to a union like captain or something mm-hmm. and they're on a train and him knocking him off the train while pissing i'm like that is the coolest shit i've ever seen
0: dude him hitting that dude's uh, head against the rock is like fucking brutal, brutal. i was not expecting mm. that i was kind of shocked because when it shows uh, mm. them falling off the train i felt really bad for the stunt actors because they fall into the sand that's like super rocky mm-hmm. And I don't mean like tiny rocks, like Like pebbles. These were like boulders. Like kill a man (laughs) if you threw it at him type rocks. I just, I hope they got paid well.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, back then, there were no standards. probably not. The fucking, there was no safety concerns for any actor on Mm -hmm. set. It was Alec Baldwin all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, you know, that was like really shocking because I feel like a lot of the film is parody in some way corny campy action and that's amazing and I love that stuff but Mm -hmm. that was the one moment I'm like god damn like this guy is going after Mm -hmm. it and even though it was a fucking hilarious situation to like knock a man over
0: while we're trying to both take a piss it was really smart it was great writing it was kind of a reality check to see such brutalism Mm -hmm. in this 60s movie Uh, another scene like that that comes to mind is uh, Tuco's interrogation Mm -hmm. where I felt like if you go back and watch a 50s or 60s movie with someone getting beat like that, it'd be so cheesy. It'd be rocky sound or rocky uh sound effects like yeah. hit a man so hard it sounds like a bat breaking. He gets his fucking ass kicked Bad. in that scene. Like it felt modern to a degree. Mm-hmm.
1: Also the the elements of we're going to play music so that no one can hear mm. this uh this torture essentially. That was actually like really beautiful.
0: Like Oh man, that that composition is Mm -hmm. mm, chef's kiss you know
1: i think something that we probably should bring up is the civil war plot was something that i was not expecting at all and while like doing a little research for the film i guess i never really viewed history this way westerns are typically set in this this time civil war early america and in the civil war is something that the vast majority of Western directors would avoid. It would be set during the, uh, the Civil War era, but they would never touch the war. And this is a film written by four Italian men, directed by an Italian, touching the Civil War. And I found that extremely shocking, uh, because it'd be like an American writing about Japanese culture, or like Chinese culture, or, you know, any like European culture. Mm-hmm. I found that very bold. I think there was like, I think that's a, a term that I'm probably gonna throw around a lot here on out. Like, yeah, there's a lot of bold
0: choices going on in the film, like this being one of the big ones. I think that all of like the American original westerns strayed away from it because, from what I know, American westerns are usually showcasing like the good mm-hmm. of America, like and oh, you're John Wayne, land of opportunity, like mm-hmm. here's our cowboy that does no wrong type shit. You talk like this. Mm-hmm. I'm a fucking
1: cowboy. (laughs) You put that woman down right now, mister. (laughs) Like that
0: type of shit. It's weird though, because even though the Confederacy is featured in this movie, they're not portrayed in a negative light. Mm -mm. Like both sides of the war are kind of like shown in a very neutral way.
1: I think what's a great just, contrast. Yeah. Contrast. That's the, the synonym that I'm looking for the union being the ones holding confederates as prisoners of war from my experience. And I think the vast majority of Americans probably you view the union as the good guys, as the guys against slavery. Those are the Mm -hmm. guy, you know, like that's like the big number one topic, the
0: good old Yankees
1: Mm -hmm. and showing the, the morality within these characters portraying the union. Um, it's like, Oh yeah. Like there is no line. Between these two separate armies, like with like ethical and and moral obligation, like Mm -hmm. it's it's portraying humanity in a way that's we're both messy. It's just like one side one you view them that way, like the good guys.
0: The government has told me that this is what we're doing, Mm -hmm. but really in reality, just a bunch of young young guys trying to survive. Mm -hmm. You know, that was my biggest thematic takeaway,
1: where there is no. Complete good and complete evil, mm-hmm. um, yeah. especially like being portrayed through our three characters and showing the the Civil War, the two sides of the coin. Where honestly, like it is completely turning it on its head. Where you really are just following uh, most of the time the Union. Like the Confederacy is is really not a a side that we're given. Yeah. Um, so it kind of paints them in a light that is a little bit more dark and confusing, uh, I guess for at least my perspective like mm-hmm. going into it like it really rocked my world a little bit.
0: And don't get me wrong, I hate everything that the confederacy stood for. Okay. <laughs> Fuck them. But wait, you mean you <laughs> <laughs> We live in Ohio, goddammit. Goddammit. I have no heritage not hate. It's <laughs> <That's laughs> my heritage, goddammit. I don't I don't have that in my blood. I don't but either. in terms of displaying a theme within a film, it was mm-hmm. brilliant that they did it that way.
1: Mm-hmm. And I just again I think it's beautiful in a way where it's like an extremely bold take to for an Italian to display like American culture that way. I Mm -hmm. thought I thought that was like if there was anything I could take away from the film. Like I think that's the the major theme that I think resonated with me the most that that like fucking blew me away. Everything else cut out like I think that would be the the one thing throughout the film that will stick with me the most. I found it super interesting.
0: It's not something that you see tackled in a complex, blurred Mm -hmm. lines kind of way, like in modern film, for the most part. At all, no. I don't think. I can't name one film.
1: God damn it. (laughs) Granted, I I do think I am a little bit blinds, like I have a blind side, because I have not had the opportunity to watch late 90s, early 2000s, like historical dramas. So that is like a blind side in my repertoire. So okay. that is something that I will comment. From my knowledge, I have never seen anything contrast like American history in such a way. So I found that extremely interesting. Piss break.
0: I kind of wanted to get into how much Tarantino is inspired by uh, Sergio Leone. I think a year or two ago, I had a conversation with my Uncle Steve about Tarantino's movies. And he told me... Quentin Tarantino stole everything that Sergio Leone ever did.
1: Whoa, that's a big, big comment.
0: He said all his movies end in a Mexican standoff, (laughs) (laughs) which they do, for the most part, they do, to be honest. Yeah. There's a few instances in this that I thought were uh, pretty clear, and you can use the word stolen or inspiration as loosely as you want, I guess. You can kind of, it kind of depends. Dude, hold on a second. Let's. What? I don't want to steer your thunder, but like. You are right. like Or, like, that
1: comment is correct. All of his films do end in a fucking Mexican standoff. I've literally never thought of it like that. Reservoir Dogs does. Pulp Fiction does. Django does, for the most part. I mean, that's, like, the last ten minutes, but... Uh-huh. Uh, I don't think
0: Inglorious Bastards does. Mm, yeah, eh. still.
1: It's, you're, you're, you have, like, two characters. Yes, he fucking puts a scar on his head. Like, that's... it's it's, it's
0: usually, like, a... It's metaphorical. Everybody pointing guns at each other at the same time. Your uncle's right, but go <laughs> ahead. Sorry. That's so, like, that's a huge revelation <laughs> for me. A big thing that I noticed was, and this is a scene that we kind of skipped over earlier, was uh, the lunch scene with Angel Eyes and that guy that he interrogates where they're talking to each other. Mm-hmm. I couldn't help but think of the first scene in *Inglorious Bastards with Christoph Waltz. Where he goes to the French guy's house and he's like, they're like sharing tea or coffee in a very intimidating manner. Oh my God, you're right. Dude, it's stolen or inspired uh, (laughs) verbatim. I'm not mad because I I like Tarantino a lot, but um, I couldn't help but notice, dude.
1: Only having seen Inglorious Bastards in the last few years, that scene is the most tense that I think he has ever shot. Mm -hmm. Like that scene
0: fucking is petrifying. And I think that one might be a little bit more effective than what appears in this film, but it does seem like it was kind of the blueprint in a way. Damn, dude. Your uncle's smart as fuck. He's a little bit of a an old movie nerd kind of guy, I guess. That's fucking, that's fucking amazing. Another one I wanted to bring up, another tie-in, is uh, the career of Clint Eastwood is echoed quite loudly in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Rick Dalton is very inspired by Clint Eastwood's career. Started out... Generic Western TV show, not going anywhere. God damn it, I got to go and do Italian Westerns.
1: Mm. That's the
0: whole fucking plot of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, my God. You You know know that that title is stripped from... Once Upon a Time in the West. Yep.
1: Yeah. God, dude, he's a fucking scam artist, bro. (laughs) Like, what the fuck?
0: I don't think it's a secret that Tarantino, (laughs) like, wears his influences on his sleeve. Of course, yeah. And his pant leg, and his collar, and his hat. (laughs) Okay. But I'm not um, mad. He, he makes great movies,
1: you know? It's fucking Quentin Tarantino, yes. Everybody fucking loves him. Like, except for, like, that one bitch that would interview him that one time on TV at that news...
0: I don't know. You remember that? You were. Ever... Why so much violence? Yeah. Because it's so much fun. Is that what <laughs> you're yeah. talking about? Yeah. Yeah, it's great.
1: I really love... Uh, and this is a great side note, but I really love Samuel Jackson's comments on Tarantino where... I think he was doing an interview for 60 Minutes, one of the the journalist, I can't, I can't, his name escapes me, but pretty iconic guy. And he was talking about how Samuel Jackson says that he cannot be racist because in my opinion, all my roles, my character feels like the smartest character. You know what? That might be true. He says he cannot be racist because of, (laughs) how do I put this? Like, I don't want to, he puts more thought into the writing of that type of character. Samuel Jackson's portrayal of the house slave, like the house slave is extremely intelligent. Like he's the one that figures out like he messed up their plan. Mr. Candy. He's here for that girl. Like, and his
0: character in Pulp Fiction is extremely intelligent. He walks out unscathed Mm -hmm. in that one. And Jackie Brown, which I know you haven't seen. He's the exact same way. He figures everything out that, uh, Pam Greer is doing in that movie. I fucking love Tarantino.
1: Like, yeah, for that reason. Like I, I think he is working in, so many layers like first and foremost like he has with without a doubt like adderall cocaine energy to where like he is just all cylinders are firing i think it's extremely admirable and uh quite interesting to watch <laughs> so anyway super super weird side note but i think that's like seeing his influences within this film mm-hmm. that just brought like brand new uh uh ammo to my fucking arsenal dude like that's that's fucking great
0: the freeze frames that introduce each of our three characters mm. with the font that appears next to them, I, I feel like has been used in some manner in Kill his Bill. movies. Yeah. yeah, God, dude, he really
1: does just love film. Yeah. God, is just opening up a big can of worms for me. What
0: else do you want to tackle while we're here? I guess this is kind of a small scene, but do you remember at the beginning of the movie where we have the two guys walk into each other? like, in the center of town, mm-hmm. and you think they're about to have a duel, but then they walk into the saloon and shoot that up instead. Mm-hmm. That guy, he's literally the first character that uh, has his face appear on camera. Like, he, it starts with a close-up, like, right in his fucking face. <laughs> and he comes back to get revenge on Tuco later on. Remember, he has, like, the one arm. <laughs> yeah, in the, the bathroom,
1: or the the bathtub.
0: Yeah, I really like how it subverts introducing like this late antagonist into the game like oh god like how's this guy gonna play out mm-hmm. and then uh he just gets shot and like killed immediately
1: the like, uh the line is uh i'm butchering it and i don't know it word for word but essentially don't talk just shoot
0: yeah i think that's verbatim actually oh okay <laughs> um gotcha little things like that are a lot of fun
1: also i think it is um a little bit of parody or like um smart humor in a way of like delivering big monologue just to have it fucking uh, stepped on. (laughs) Like um, that was really smart to me. And I think those are the moments where I like, I really liked Tuco a lot. I think at the end of it, I really felt for his character. Like Mm -hmm. he was extremely flawed in the ways that other, the the other two weren't, weren't really displayed. Angel eyes being this almost like this honed edge. I'm going to disregard life for money. I mean, you get, like his morality is displayed within the first fifteen minutes of him coming back and saying, like uh, he tried to offer me a thousand dollars to kill you. You know, I'm a man of my word. Essentially, pulling the uh, this I, is my this is my morality, and I adhere to it to a T.
0: Yeah,
1: killing his uh what do you call it? His contract. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never go without. Getting the job done, basically. Mm-hmm. Like that was, you get to know him, his character and the way he operates very quickly. Blondie, I think his was more muddled, um, but I think essentially Clint Eastwood's character is very, oh, how do I put this? He flows. He flows with the situation. I really feel like his his um, motives are really not on display. Rather, he is like this transient vessel that the story moves through in a way that I don't really feel like he's the main character. He's really not. And then with Tuco, I think I think he's the main character. I feel like he is the one that has the most complex story. You know, he becomes the... You know, you get to hear the list of crimes that, <laughs> that he's committed while being hung. And, like, you're like, oh, this guy is a fucking piece of shit. Yeah. But also, I feel like you're extremely empathetic with him. You understand... Especially in moments with, like, his brother at the church. It's either you become a priest or you become a bandit. And I picked the harder road. And, like, that's where where he operates. And I think he's so much more lovable uh, because of, like, his messiness.
0: Yeah. He steals the fucking show. Mm -hmm. This entire movie. I don't know if the crimes that are listed are all that real. I think there's a sense of reality to them. But I think because of the scam they're running... Mm. They can manipulate the situation mm. to, like, make him uh, make him worse, mm-hmm. give him a higher bounty. Because we get two scenes where they uh, he almost gets hung, and then mm-hmm. Eastwood saves him. And, like, the list of crimes are different each time. <laughs> it's completely ridiculous. Like, it's everything under the sun.
1: I think this gets kind of echoed and mirrored in Django with, now you may get the coach marshal. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, um... <laughs> The fact that when you would turn in a bounty, it was almost like you're taking someone's word for it. The fucking court-martial, the sheriff, may not know exactly all the crimes listed for this bounty or, like, it's not like they have, like, a... FBI's most wanted list. It's like you turn in a paper to this guy and he's like, "Sounds good." <laughs> yeah. So, there wasn't a whole lot of checks and balances mm-hmm. back in the day. And I think like um I think that's like kind of comedic the way that's being oh, portrayed. For, for
0: sure. I think with a character like Tuco, they could have accidentally steered too far into comedic relief territory mm. or he's a doofus kind of thing i think he kind of displays himself as being just as smart as mm-hmm. the other two 100 percent. he has an uncanny ability of self-preservation mm. I, I think that the way him and clint eastwood's character differ is that blondie reads the situation and like kind of reacts later tuco reacts in the moment mm-hmm. But he usually, like, reacts in a way that kind of gets him out of it anyways. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I I thought that was kind of interesting. I always
1: felt like there were subtle things going on where the tension in this scene would change ever so slightly just based off of slight mannerisms. Should I reach for my gun? There would be moments of of display where I would take my hand off my gun to be submissive in a way or there will be moments where again like you said tuco was being actually the smart one in that situation where i think like the bathhouse or not the bathhouse but the him in the bathtub of this abandoned building taking a bath was you get to see a lot of his character throughout that where he's always on defense he's like the stray dog
0: yeah he's scrappy
1: yeah him having the gun in the water underneath Uh, underneath the bubbles like that was that was really smart yeah
0: he knows how to look out for himself
1: with blondie you know he is the my plan is formulated long after the fact and the reveal will be deep into the situation and with angel eyes are bad it's like ham-fisted i'm in control this power grab kind of aggressive nature to him. Where I think like throughout the film, again, these ebbs and flows feel extremely natural as far as the writing is displayed. It's really smart. And I guess I want to commend the film for that. I mean, it being this old, again, calling back to, oh, people in that time were just more ignorant and aren't as smart. Where like I was completely blown away in the fact that this was some extremely
0: tight script writing i completely agree although do you feel like there might have been a few instances of coincidence mm. that played
1: into things i feel like it happens a lot more early in the film remember the march through the town and the tuco and his gang
0: they're trying to hang mm-hmm. uh, blondie blondie getting saved by artillery that doesn't kill them but just so happens to save everybody in the situation is like Mm. kind of ridiculous but I wasn't mad about it either you know what I think those moments
1: early on in the film really dwindle away by the end I think those like coincidence moments that are littered throughout the beginning of the film are just playing to I think they're just like trying to set up what, like, the next plot point? No, how do I put this? I think those coincidence moments are just being the the tropes to show this is the good, this is the bad, this is the ugly. This is the, oh, the good. He always will get away. Don't you worry. Or, like, since he's the ugly, he can never really uh, capitalize on the position that he's gained. Ooh, that's a good point. You know what I mean? That's a good point. And then, like, later throughout the film... Those become less apparent because we're deepening our characters. We're, we're showing that they're not just like these cookie cutter moments early on in the film. Like we're going to subvert your expectation by the end. Like mm. we're going to kind of like fuck with these characters' personalities. That is a good point. But I completely agree with you. That
0: is such an apparent thing early on. But what about when Blondie and Tuco are out in the desert? And they just so happen to come across Bill Carson, the Bill Carson <laughs> and everybody else dead in like this chariot. Yeah, that's strange. It's more of like a destiny type plot point, I guess. It's the happenstance. Like, it's like, the coincidence. Like it's, it's meant to happen.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it kind of like speaks to the point you brought up earlier with this is less of a character driven, plot driven story and just characters kind of becoming what's happening around them. But I do think by the end, it becomes this display of all of these coincidences playing into this very major and pivotal, deep plot where like the characters themselves are taking advantage of happenstance.
0: Yeah, that's true. And that's fucking cool. Don't get me wrong. I was not mad about it.
1: Is it an issue
0: type like, of question? Like script writing
1: uh, mm. tricks,
0: I guess. Like MacGuffins all over the place? Yeah, Exactly. We can like probably talk about the uh, the, the finale, the final scene at the graveyard, which was um, wonderful,
1: okay, uh, amazing, by far one of my favorite endings of a film ever. Really, just like the the final reveal of the fact that Blondie did have the upper hand. There was no treasure. Was it Ashton? What was the last name? Arch Stanton. Stanton. Sorry. Just feeling like there was um all of these like really complex things coming to its final head feeling like the the characters that really deserved a decent ending got it like I was really worried I didn't know how this film ended Mm -hmm. and you have this three-way Mexican standoff happening and I don't know why I couldn't I I had no trust by the end I'm like I don't know how this is going to end I'm like is the bad guy going to make a way? Is Blondie going to die? It's like this very um, up in the air situation. And it fucking got me like
0: the editing for this final scene. It was superb, man. I know that I said that this was like a vignette driven story. But once we get to this final scene, it really does feel like we have many working pieces that built up to uh-huh. it. It's wonderful. I think that when Tuco is the first one to arrive to the cemetery and he's looking for the gravestone and there's so many fucking gravestones <laughs> that he's like circling around and looking for it. And then the cinematography, like the camera, mm-hmm. just starts spinning. spinning. It's nauseating, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But I think it displays the situation in a very effective way. Mm-hmm. I can't tell if it's making a comment on the war itself, like, mm-hmm. hey, look at all these fucking dead bodies that are like just buried here
1: i um it immediately reminded me of Arlington Cemetery in washington d c oh where all of the the white crosses oh if you've yeah, ever yeah, been yeah. there, I remember that very vividly that's what, immediately what I got reminded of of just bodies upon bodies just buried for miles what it seems
0: mm-hmm.
1: gravestones mm-hmm. marked as unknown mm-hmm.
0: it's really sad
1: well it reminded me of that as well because at arlington cemetery they do um the tomb of the unknown soldier it's like a um uh, mm-hmm. i don't know how to describe it's like it's almost like forgive me anybody that like listens to this that's in the military they would know but it's almost like um a parade uh like this the showmanship like they do like um memorial yeah a a memorial like uh, you know like when if you ever been to like a family member or someone that's been in the armed services if and you have like the the honor guard like shoot off rounds like Mm -hmm. blanks into the air and stuff similar to that where like they they march and they do like um essentially like what is a a kata i don't know how what else to like how to describe it like um unfortunately i can't fill you in like routine where like there's so many steps to take. Tradition. Tr- yeah. And there is a, a formula, a, yeah, a tradition, a way to honor an unknown soldier. Um, and like, that, that's what it reminded me of, like seeing the unknown on the, on these wooden crosses of, of gravestones. And again, calling into comments on the war. That's where my, my mind was mm-hmm. at during that. Yeah. I literally like, I was getting like really sick, like watching it. Cause it like, it's not only like brief, it's, It's like, hey, let's do a minute and a half of, like, this camera just
0: spinning all over the place. Dude, I was two and a half beers in when I watched this scene. It was (laughs) fucking with me. But, yeah, it it does lead to a series of scenes that are really great. Tuco finding the grave, starting to dig it up with, like, Eastwood's silhouette, his shadow, like, shining over. And then you get the, like, music. (laughs) It's really funny that Blondie empties out the bullets of Tuco's guns, or gun, the night before. Mm Mm-hmm because he knows that he's the wild card. Although I do find it interesting that when they do the Mexican standoff, they both shoot Van Cleef, or they yeah. both
1: aim at him at least. That calls back to the journey that these characters have been on, where they both know that there's a slight bit of trust between them both. Yeah. Where like um, Van Cleef's character as Angel Eyes the Bad almost like shoehorns his way into relationally with Blondie, like, Leaving the prisoner of war camp, like, no, Tuco's not dead, but, you know,
0: you and I are going to walk this road together now. Mm-hmm. I know you're smart enough not to talk, because you know it won't... Uh, Save you. L- yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> stuff like that is really smart, and also, like, extremely subtle. Like It can go slightly overlooked if you're not paying attention, mm-hmm. which I think speaks volumes to how the story is set up and the way it's finished. Granted, I think it is shown slightly, like, our three main characters... Or like dead-eye, perfect-shot gunslingers. Oh, yeah. And the fact that Blondie shoots to injure Angel Eyes, and only when he attempts to kill Blondie after being injured does he actually kill him. And then shooting his hat and shooting his gun into the <laughs> grave, like, that was fucking icing on the cake, dude. Oh, yeah. Although, like, the sound effects don't make sense at all. Like, you get a gunshot in the meow. the
0: ricochet sound. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any sense, but... Hey, man, it's the trope. Hey, man. It's gotta be there. It's beautiful. I think you made a comment earlier about how long this face-off is, and it's something that I meant to bring up earlier, but do you remember how I said this was filmed with no sound? Mm-hmm. Well, the score was written and performed before the movie was filmed, So they played the score on set during the filming of the scenes, and the score dictated how the scenes were paced. Mm. So that's why a lot of scenes are drawn out way longer than you would expect them to be. They're, They're playing to the music. That's what the actors are going off of? Yes. God, it's fucking sick. There's a scene earlier where they're at the bridge, and Tuco is about to give... Blondie, the info about what cemetery they're at. How long does he pause before speaking? 30, 40 seconds? It's a fucking close up of his face where he's like, All right, I'll tell you. Uh, and like we're just sitting on it. He's waiting for the cue, the music mm. cue. It's so weird. It sounds like it would suck. Like it, normally this would be disastrous for many movies, but the score is so perfect because it dictated the pacing of the film. It ended up being so amazing. I don't know if I can even put it into words.
1: There was like some, I, I meant to comment on earlier and I want to wrap up soon, but there's a specific sound, or excuse me, there's a, a specific theme in the score where it kind of is taking like this um, neutral fill sound where it's like kind of like beautiful melancholy um, that gets littered throughout um, scenes. And I think it's actually what introduces a lot of scenes Little things like that where this callback, uh, it's like a little simmer moment where you can kind of just sit down into a scene because a lot of it is just like subtle transition character going here and there. That shit is fucking beautiful to me. And I don't think you really can get anything like that outside of this genre and time period that I think was like a treat to watch. It cannot happen in the way... Um, that it's portrayed in the film, like, in modern
0: standard. Mm -hmm. It makes me very sad, to be honest. Long sequences of Tuco checking the cigars at bonfires.
1: like, that stuff
0: is so fucking... It was smart, because at first, you're like, hey, why the
1: fuck is this guy, like, trying to bum cigars off of a campfire? (laughs) And then as the sequence rolls through, you're like, oh, he's tracking how close he is, which... Again, I don't know, like, this is a really weird side tangent, but, like, I've been reading The Dark Tower. I read the second book at the beginning, or, excuse me, at the end of December and finished that up at the end of the year. Like, Stephen King was inspired. The gunslinger, Roland, the character that is the main character of The Dark Tower is completely based off of Clint Eastwood's character in Mm -hmm. in in this trilogy draws direct inspiration from, and he's chasing the man in black across the desert and he checks his campfires and little things like that were like really enriching for me consuming the film in a way where I know that this iconic film is being drawn upon by an iconic author Stephen King I just felt like it's multifaceted multi-layered film where you're like getting a lot out of what otherwise would be just an old fucking
0: movie so little things like that were just I'm glad you brought that up. I almost completely forgot to bring mm-hmm. up that point. A lot of those small scenes get lost in transition, man. Mm-hmm. Do you know what my favorite scene in the movie is? I know we're about to head into ratings. Mm, that's all good. Tuco going to the gun store, and <laughs> oh my god, I almost completely forgot Dude, about that. That is my favorite scene in it's the movie. A... We're just taking time. He's uh-huh. t- he's uh, taking apart these revolvers and like mixing mm-hmm. different parts of the gun around. You know, um, when they filmed this, Sergio Leone, he just told Eli Wallach. Uh, Because, like, neither of them knew anything about guns. He said, like, just play with the guns. Mm. And so he sat there and, like, took him apart. And, like, you know how he rolls the bullet chamber around? He listens "Mm -hmm." to it up close to his ear. None of it to him meant anything. But in the scene, it makes him look like an expert fucking gunslinger. Mm. It's so cool. I don't know. Like, those small parts get lost and transition to, like, the bigger story beats. But they're all so... Expertly crafted, whether it is accidental or not, it's so awesome, dude. Yeah, it's unique <laughs> as fuck.
1: Like that's that's like trivia. Like that's fucking awesome. Yeah. It's like history. Old films are extremely fun for this reason. I think this one kind of like is at the top of the of the tower here. Like it, it just feels like um like the penthouse suite of like old mm. films. It's it's sick as fuck. Oh yeah. I think like I I do want to comment like when we wrap up here. The end. I was like really worried for Tuco. I didn't want Tuco to die that was my biggest thing like him hanging
0: yeah like i, I kind of turned against blondie when that happened. yeah i
1: know i was like oh my like there's no way they're like that's my immediate thought i'm like they're, they can like they cannot like sour blondie at the end here but him shooting the rope is like the perfect symbolism from like where they started to where they end
0: it feels like they're destined to do this forever mm-hmm. basically
1: you say that and like that immediately reminds me of the dark tower where like those characters are literally destined to do what they are doing forever. Mm-hmm. Sorry, but they'll be friends. They'll be enemies.
0: Rinse, wash, repeat. Yeah. God damn it.
1: <laughs> this film just feels extremely multi layered in a way that is uh, unlike anything I've ever watched. Like it's it's very mm-hmm. subtle. Like I had a big fucking grin across my face when I finished the film. And I laughed and, and chuckled. And, you know, the whole reason I, I recommended this film is because we we wanted to both watch this film. We had mentioned uh, to each other, like, that, man, that's something we, I want to tackle sometime soon. Like, I, we at least need to watch it. And, like, my grandpa used to watch this film when I was a kid. Uh-huh. And him, him and I hanging out. You know, my grandparents would watch this after school. And just knowing that my, my grandpa, like, in his retirement has, like, sat down... Watch this film for like six hours on TV because like mm, that's the ads. way old people can like consume fucking TV. Yeah. Um, they have to watch a movie when it's on TV for yeah five to six hours. If it's a three hour movie, it goes on forever. I felt like really connected to him mm-hmm. while watching it. That was something that I really um, really enjoyed. Like this was a a movie that I knew nothing about as a kid, but we would always say like the good, the bad, and the ugly. Like when my grandpa was watching the good and the bad and the ugly, we would just say the good, the bad, and the ugly. We would say it all day long that day. And I don't know. It's just um, cool for me to, as an adult, like really digest this film in a way that I've never had a chance to see it. That was a lot of fun for me. And I felt oddly close to him for some reason Mm. while watching it, which was um, a treat.
0: My grandpa used to watch westerns all the time as well, and I would walk in and watch Mm -hmm. for 10 minutes or so. You know, I'm a kid. You have no idea what's happening. Yeah, exactly. Maybe this was one of the movies that was on Mm -hmm. at that time. Yeah, it did give me that sense, exactly as you just stated. Childlike wonder. Mm -hmm. Even, like, watching it now, as a 29-year-old, I'm like, yeah, like, I'm watching a bygone era. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Good thing is, like, I think
1: after watching this film, like, I really want to, like open myself up to more Western films. Like I feel, I think both of us probably share the same sentiment of like we got a lot out of what otherwise would be
0: like just a loss of genre to both of us. I would consider it criminal if I never checked up on Sergio Leone's other films. Mm-hmm. And uh, I will do that eventually. I like check through top 10 spaghetti Western
1: ranked blog posts and shit. Mm-hmm. Like I'm like, I want to watch like these movies now. Like I feel like... These are like the Sunday afternoon, just like the, if like a, a a sports season isn't going on, like this is what I need to be doing with my time. I don't know. It was just a fucking treat, dude. When it comes to ratings. Yeah. How do you feel about it, man? One to 10. You know, I think we said just about the most praise that you could give a film of this age. I think going into it, I was pretty solid with my rating, even though I think this conversation elevated my viewing experience. I think I still want to sit like at a nine and a half, nine out of 10. I think that's where I sit. I still have my problems. The ADR is like really frustrating at times, (laughs) like so frustrating. But I think thematically, like just the composition of the characters and the way they relate to each other and the way they operate in these three hours felt really special. That was the most important thing that I think I got out of it. It was extremely unique And I think it's something that only this genre could really tackle. I think nine, nine and a half is like where I sit. It definitely could be a 10 out of 10 in many people's eyes. But I just think watching it once all the way through was good enough to kind of cement it in that way. I don't know. It just felt beyond solid. Probably a masterpiece. I don't know why I wouldn't give it that, but it just feels... It's so close for some reason,
0: but not quite Mm. there. Okay. That's completely fair. Um, For me, I think this movie is as flawed as any other really fucking great movie, but for some reason, the trend setting, the influence that Mm. it established, I I relate to you in the way that I had a big fucking grin on my face the whole time I watched it. This is going to be one of the biggest, fattest 10 out of Mm. 10s that I've ever given, I think. I loved it so much. I think you're right. Like, I, like, honestly, I do. Like, I do think you're right. It, it, it's janky in many ways, but it subverted my expectations in ways that I didn't expect. God, you're right. It, 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 hit, it hit just all the notes that I hoped it would hit, and then it hit ones outside mm. of those notes that I didn't expect.
1: God, you're so fucking
0: right. It was just so exciting and fun. I, I loved it, man. Look,
1: look at me trying to be fucking cool, being like, nah, it's not a fucking 10, bro. <laughs> like, you're like, yeah, bro, it's a fucking 10. Like, come on. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. You're so fucking right. Like, I mean, I mean, you're fucking right. I don't know how else to, I, I to say I think nine it. to nine and a half is very fair, though. Yeah. It was awesome. It was fucking awesome. Um, the floor is yours, my friend. I mean...
0: Oh, I almost forgot. Yeah. Uh, I guess this is dictated by your response to this question. Would you rather do an album or a movie? God damn it. I wish you didn't do this to me.
1: Uh Dude, we have not done an album in so long. That's true. But part of me wants to like take the album road because I've been super dry on a lot of music, but I know you have been in movie mode and I want to like let that happen. Like I want to let you just, like okay. you are like movie mode, so I, I just want you to pick the movie that you
0: like want to show me. Well, this is hard to explain. The album that I had chosen is something I had planned for a while, but as the weeks have gone on, The concept kind of became dry to me for Mm -hmm. some reason. Like it didn't feel right anymore. And there are a bunch of movies that I have watched recently that I wanted to recommend, but I think I'm going to put them on the back burner for a while. The movie that I want to recommend is actually something I've never seen before. Good. These are always the best. And I have another question for you to lead into my white boy spiel. (laughs) Okay. Austin, I consider me and you to have fine taste in music and movies. Yeah. I think we appreciate things. We are a couple of homos when it comes to that shit, yeah. And I think we both have... <laughs> How did I not comment on that? <laughs> yeah, anyway, continue. I just let it breeze right through me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. Go ahead. We're a couple of homos. Yeah, for sure. We both have guilty pleasures, I think.
1: 100%, yeah. I've been leaning into them lately. Yeah.
0: What is Alex Getter's biggest guilty pleasure? Like WWE? Correct. Okay, cool. I like wrestling a lot. Yeah. I'll, I'll be the first to admit it. Okay. I'm a big fan of wrestling. Mm-hmm. And in 2008, Darren Aronofsky made a film called The Wrestler.
1: Is this with um, Mickey Rourke? It is. Oh, dude, I've been wanting to like see
0: this for a long time. So have I. And I've actually been waiting to do it for the podcast. And I kept putting it off for the last couple of years. And the fact that... Me and you might watch the Royal Rumble tonight. There is no mind about it. Okay, we will watch the Royal Rumble tonight. This is my Hail Mary. Like this is a an in the situation circumstantial pick okay. that I chose today. Okay. So, yeah,
1: dude, I have like had an itch that I've wanted scratched for a while. There is a movie that I think will come up on the podcast eventually. Mm-hmm. It's called Warrior. Tom Hardy. Tom Isn't it? Hardy and Joel Edgerton. And, um, I've been wanting to like rewatch like the Rocky movies for some reason. Like I want to watch a movie about like fighters for some reason. This will probably scratch that
0: itch a little bit. I think it's supposed to display the shittiness of either being an indie or a washed up former star. Yeah. Like in a, a tough Uh, business. I've
1: heard only good things about this movie. So, and, and, and it's something that I don't know a lot about, but it's like, I know of it. And I'm curious to see. Mm -hmm.
0: And I've seen two other Darren Aronofsky films, like Requiem for a Dream, Black Swan. So I kind of know what tone to expect going in.
1: I've never seen Requiem for a Dream, but I've seen Black Swan. So I've only heard like fucking harrowing things about Requiem for a Dream. So (sighs) They're both fucked up movies. Yeah, for sure. I was a lot younger when I watched Black Swan, though, so I don't think it really registered. But yeah, man. That's going to be a lot of fun. I hope it's good. Mickey Rourke, dude. Mickey Rourke. That'll be a can of worms to open mm-hmm. up. So, wow. That was like one of my favorite podcasts we've ever done. So we're about to do another one.
0: We might be a little drunk.
1: There's yeah. only one way to talk about fucking life and full circles and Christopher <laughs> Nolan. And you must do it in an inebriated state. So yeah, um, that'll be the next episode. Catch us. Our blood alcohol content will be uh, above the legal limit. Uh, Getter, that was that was one of the best. Uh, that was so much fun. The wrestlers coming up. Uh, I have nothing other to say, other than uh, could you do me a favor and uh, sign us out. Adios.